All right, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This morning we will learn about forgiveness. Uh, And every Christian knows, obviously, that forgiveness is at the heart of our religion. Without forgiveness, there are no Christians, because Christians are those who trust in the sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. I mean, that's literally what this thing is about. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So quite literally, the difference between Christians and non-Christians is that God has graciously forgiven Christians of our sins, and he has not forgiven non-Christians of theirs. That's the difference between Christians and non-Christians. The difference is not at the level of sinfulness. The difference is in forgiveness, pardon, and cleansing. We are not better than those who are unforgiven. We're no less wretched. We're no less deserving of hell. We're no less inclined to sin. We're no less capable of evil and wickedness. But in pure, sheer unadulterated mercy and grace. God has looked at you, and he has looked at me, and he has marked us out for salvation. This is a work of his grace. He saved us from us. And more substantively, he saved us from him. He saved us from him by pouring his wrath out for our sin on a substitute, the spotless lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Undeserved forgiveness is at the heart of our gospel. And as we'll see throughout the message, undeserved forgiveness is actually redundant. Forgiveness is always undeserved. Forgiveness is what made us Christians. And because forgiveness is what made us Christians, forgiveness must mark us as Christians. That is, we must extend what we've received. That is, in large part, why we received it to begin with, so that we would become extensions of that which God has given to us. We are objects of mercy so that we can become vessels of mercy. This is a huge part of the focus of the Sermon on the Mount. God has sovereignly chosen a people to whom he will display his goodness, so that Through us, he might display that goodness beyond us by means of us. It's one of the primary things that Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. God is good to us to make us good so that we will do good to others and extend his goodness throughout his creation. God is aiming to change the world, and he means to do it by changing us, our relationships to each other and to the world. He's redeeming us to make us a redemptive force in his world, to restore what was broken in Genesis chapter 3. We are the brothers and sisters of the second Adam, living according to the pattern of that Adam's obedience, rejecting the disobedience of the first Adam. We are, if you will, rebelling against the first Adam's rebellion. We're reversing the curse by living faithfully under its remaining effects until such a time as the Lord consummates the new heavens and the new earth. We're doing battle against the powers of darkness, but our weapons are not 
carnal, as the Apostle Paul tells us. We are combatants called to conquer. We're called to a species of violence. We're called to tear things down, to destroy, to dominate, but not man's way. Not primarily with our fists or firepower, but with our faithfulness to Christ, which, as we're learning this morning, entails our forgiveness. We aren't called to live by the sword, lest we die by it, but our God has given us a sword, hasn't he? It's a sharp sword, and it slays with unrivaled efficiency. Our problem is that when our backs are against the wall and we feel the enemy approaching, our inclination is to put down the weapons that God has given us and pick up weapons that are more like the ones that our enemy is wielding because they look like they're more dangerous than the one that we have. Right? Leather does not seem particularly sharp to us. Like Israel, desirous of a king that the other nations had, we often want horses and princes and mighty champions that match our pagan counterparts in the battle for the earth. But what we got is a dying carpenter who, best anyone could tell, was losing. Beaten, stripped, nailed to a piece of wood, utterly shamed. Losing. Every insult received, every blow Cross his face struck, every back flaying laceration, every blood filled gasp for air on the cross. They're mocking because, best anyone can tell, he's losing. And of course, in a sense, he was. He was losing a lot. He was losing his life. Literally, he's losing. But as we know, in all of that losing, he was winning. In all of that suffering, he was conquering. You see, we, like the disciples, don't know a victory when we see one. In our faithlessness, we do not believe that our battles can be won the way that the Lord Jesus has called us to win them. The way that Christ won. The way of the cross. This always looks untenable as a path to victory, and so we, we generally take what looks like a more promising path, battling the world's way. God's way never looks like it's going to win. God's way is Judges chapter 6. Remember Gideon and his 300? That, that, that's God's way. Here's 300 scrubs and some pottery. I want you to break it when you get out on the battlefield. We're like, but they have actual weapons. What, what, what do you want us to do? And so they did have actual weapons. What, what they didn't have, though, was God. So we're often unwilling to fight the way that the Lord commands us to fight because it looks like an invitation to death and defeat. Or, perhaps more commonly, we don't fight at all because we're intimidated by the enemy. We're the ten spies returning to Moses with a bad report, right? I mean, the land's great, but we'll never take it. There's, there's no way that we could be a part of such a conquest. Now, some of you are thinking that I've left the point. This is all related. You see, this is all related to forgiveness because forgiveness is one of Jesus' world-changing, light-invading, heaven-bringing battle commands for his people. This is one of the weapons that he's put in our hand and said, this will change the world. 
This is what it looks like to inherit the earth. This is what it looks like to push back the enemy. And we're looking at that forgiveness and we're saying, this is like you sending Gideon with 300 scrubs and some pots on the battlefield and they've got swords. You, forgiveness, really? Like that's your plan? But our forgiveness fires a shot into the headquarters of the enemy camp. Because while the heart of our religion is forgiveness, have you noticed that the heart of theirs is condemnation? Condemnation. How obvious is that, right? I mean, they even condemn their own soldiers. You've seen this working out on your, new, your news feed, I imagine, right? Emily Blunt is tired of the, quote, strong female lead. She's done with every script being a feminist script. And she had the gall to say it out loud. And what happened? Condemned. Canceled. Right? Condemnation is the way. Kevin Hart used to be funny back when he made fun of gays. Can't do that anymore. And so, condemned. Condemned. Canceled. You can't host, can't host the Oscars. No. What is that? Condemnation is at the heart of their religion. Winston Marshall, formerly of Mumford and Sons, suggested that maybe Black Lives Matter should stop destroying black businesses and cities if, in fact, they cared about black people's lives. What a horrible, ghastly thing to say. Condemned. Canceled. Legit, he had to leave the band. Because condemnation is at the heart of their religious system because it's satanic. It's satanic. Condemnation is the way of the devil and his agents. Forgiveness is the way of Christ and his. So when you hear this morning's text and the message that emerges from it, don't simply think interpersonally. I, I, I'm saying to you in this prologue, that's too small. Don't just think interpersonally. Think cosmically. Because that is the height to which our interpersonal relationships actually rise in their importance as the Lord redeems the world by redeeming us and making us a people who manifest that redemption in our relatedness to one another. Forgiveness is a huge part of our warfare. So to the text, Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Our Lord says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now something that we need to get out of the way right at the beginning is the fact that this verse does no violence to our doctrine of justification by grace through faith. This text cannot be taken to mean that we achieve or earn God's forgiveness by forgiving other people. As we've already read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, our forgiveness is, quote, through his blood, not through our forgiveness of other people. However, his blood has effects beyond securing our forgiveness. It also secures our sanctification. That is, his blood buys us a new heart, out of which flows those things that are in keeping with a new life. So this is a command from the Lord of our new life to live consistently with our newness. Now, the classic treatment of this passage, with which I basically agree, emphasizes that this statement is theologically functioning as, this is sound complicated, we'll explain it. It functions as an indicative, not an imperative. 
That's the classic treatment. That is to say that our forgiveness of others indicates that we have received forgiveness from God. And our lack of forgiveness betrays a lack of being forgiven by God. So again, theologically, this should be taken indicatively, not imperatively. It's not Jesus saying, hey, you've got to do this or God won't forgive you. Rather, the idea is your forgiveness of others indicates that you've actually received God's forgiveness. And if you withhold that forgiveness, what you're signaling to the world, what you're indicating in your behavior is that you have not been the recipient of forgiveness, which is in fact why you will not extend forgiveness. And so theologically, that's classically how Protestants have taken this verse, particularly Reformed Protestants. However, we can acknowledge that lexically it doesn't read that way. As in just reading the words, that's not what it sounds like it's saying at all, right? I mean, in terms of the language, this reads like a standard conditional statement, doesn't it? If then, if this rather, then that. If this, then that. And so what I don't want to do is mute the force of the statement just by explaining it away theologically. Now, of course, we've got salvation by grace through faith as a stake. It's down in the ground and we're not pulling it up. And so I grant the point that theologically we can't make this something that is a necessary requirement for salvation as if lack of forgiveness is somehow the new unforgivable sin, right? And so I wouldn't suggest that. However, again, I don't want to mute the force of this because, again, it reads like a standard conditional statement. If this, then that. So this leads me to the conclusion that this statement should be taken both indicatively and imperatively. It's to say, take it both ways. Take it both ways. It's both a statement of indication and it is a command. And if we have actually received what is indicated, namely forgiveness, then we will obey the command to forgive. Just take it that way. That's fine. And so that's how I take the verse. But even after you establish that, we're still saved by grace through faith, and we're also commanded to do things precisely because we're saved by grace through faith. It's not a tension. That's not something that needs to be reconciled. So, but, but even once we take the verse that way, there's all manner of questions that grow up around this verse, aren't there? What is forgiveness? Let's not take the definition for granted. What is forgiveness? How do I know if I've actually done it? It's a fair question, isn't it? How do I know that I've actually forgiven someone? And then a, another question, how do, or, or excuse me, do I need to give it to everyone? Do I need to forgive everyone? Now, the answers to those three questions will fill the remainder of this morning's sermon. So if you're a note taker, you may want to write those three questions down, leaving some space in between each one. What is forgiveness? How do I know if I've done it? And do I have to forgive everyone? Do I have to forgive everyone? So first, what is forgiveness? Well, as with everything in modern thought, we tend to define things emotionally, right? That's generally our starting point in defining something. Like love, we often think of forgiveness in terms of our feelings towards a person. 
And so if our feelings toward a person aren't sufficiently warm after an offense has occurred, we may assume that forgiveness has not been extended. But that's not the teaching of Scripture on the subject. We're not commanded to have warm feelings toward our offender. We're commanded to forgive them. Those are different things. And so what is it? Well, the Bible ties forgiveness to indebtedness. You can see this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 in the Lord's Prayer. We know it famously, right? We forgive, or, or excuse me, it's an appeal for God to forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? This is tying sin to indebtedness. So when you sin against someone, what Jesus is saying, even in that model prayer, he's saying that when you sin against someone, you owe them. Sin incurs a debt, and you now owe that person whom you've sinned against something. The sin that you've committed determines then what you owe. If you stole something from them, you owe them their property back or the monetary value of it, plus interest to cover that loss that they experienced and, and the period of time that they went without the item. If you've insulted someone wrongfully, then you owe them a confession of that sin and a request for their forgiveness. But in either scenario, the sinner becomes a debtor who owes something. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness, then, is what happens when a debt is cleared. When a debt is cleared. Forgiveness is what happens when the indebted comes to the one who is owed to pay what they owe, and the one who is owed accepts the payment. That's what forgiveness is. Now, you may be thinking, that doesn't sound right, Pastor. Seems like there's all sorts of unchristian things that you said in there. I thought that forgiveness was all about putting things aside and forgetting about the debt, not about collecting it. You just said that forgiveness is the business of debt collection. That sounds totally unchristian to me. So we've been taught badly. Forgiveness is an exchange requiring the participation of at least two parties, an offended party and an offending party. You cannot forgive someone who has not asked to be forgiven in the same way that you cannot accept payment from someone who has not tried to pay you. Unless we're going to totally do something with Jesus' language of sin and indebtedness that has nothing to do with indebtedness. If we're following Jesus' language, then this is what forgiveness is. You see, our understanding of forgiveness is actually a system of rationalization. That, that's what we're actually generally talking about and getting at when we talk about forgiveness in the common vernacular. You see, rather than thinking of forgiveness as accepting someone's payment for their wrongdoing, we think of it as accepting their rationalization for why they did what they did. That, that's how we actually approach forgiveness, because we're looking to excuse them. We're not looking to forgive them. We're happy to justify them if they have what we judge to be a rational explanation for their sin. We want to make other people's sin rational because we would like to engage in the, ra in the rationalization of our own sin. So if a person is caught stealing, we want them to have a Jean Valjean kind of justification, don't we? Anybody seen uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables? 
Yeah, okay. So there, there's this opening scene where you've got this guy named Jean Valjean. He's in a prison camp and he's working his sentence. And it starts on the day of his release. And the guard who informs him of his release reminds him of his crime. And then he says very condescendingly, make sure that you follow the rules of your parole to the letter. And of course, he's insinuating that Jean Valjean is the kind of lowly degenerate who's likely to end up back in prison for breaking his parole. Right? And so Jean Valjean is offended and he's defensive. And so what he does is he goes back through and explains the crime that he committed to effectively justify himself and say to this guard, I'm not actually a bad guy. I'm not actually a bad guy. And so here's what he says. I stole a loaf of bread. Like that. I, I'm in here working in the prison camp with murderers. I stole a loaf of bread. What's he doing? He's working to minimize his offense. Well, Javert, the, the guard, is unimpressed by this minimization effort entirely. Just stone-faced, didn't receive it at all. No, you broke the law. Like, what are you talking about? Don't minimize it. So he tries our second tact when we're trying to be excused for our sin. And so he explains the reason for the crime that he committed. And here's the reason. My sister's child was close to death and my family was starving. What's that? He's rationalizing it, right? He's rationalizing it. This is what we want to substitute for real confession and real forgiveness. What we actually want is a solid rationalization and then, okay, well, you're excused then. That's what we're looking for. That's what we actually have in mind when we're thinking about forgiveness. What we want to do is minimize and or rationalize our sins and we want the other person to accept either our rationalization or our minimization and then move on. That, that's what we're looking for. And here's the thing, that usually works. That usually works. They usually do accept either our effort to minimize our sin or to rationalize our sin. And the reason that they accept it is because they want to be able to engage in the same thing when they do something wrong to you later. It's paying it forward. That's the idea. You see, we forgive what we can rationalize because in those situations, we also sympathize and can imagine ourselves in need of a similar excuse later when we offer our rationalization. So if the person caught stealing has a sob story like Jean Valjean, then we're happy to excuse him because he had the right kind of reason for doing the wrong thing. That's the idea. That's what we're always groping for when some wrong has been done. And again, it's because we want to rationalize our own sin, and that makes us willing to accept the rationalization of other people's sins. It always goes something like this, doesn't it? I'm sorry I snapped at you. I had a splitting headache, and Hudson woke up three times last night. Right? Oh, well, well, now I understand. The, the circumstances drove you to that, so now I can forgive you because that actually just makes perfect sense. I'm probably going to do that to you tomorrow, and so you'll excuse me too. Right? We call this forgiveness, but it isn't. It's an acceptance of the rationale for someone's sin and an unspoken agreement that they'll let you sin against them too, provided the circumstances can explain away your behavior as well. 
We extend and receive explanations, not confessions. They're different. We trade rationales rather than accepting responsibility. And we function in this system of explanation and rationalization because we desperately want to identify sin as a phenomenon that originates outside of us. Right? It's, not, it's not me that there's a problem with. It's the environment that I'm in. It's the circumstances that were pressing in on me. It's something that kind of happens to us. It's not something that comes from us. We want to think, following our secular humanist training, that man is basically good but that we sometimes find ourselves in tight spots that force our hand into bad places because that's a more palatable view of human nature to us than the biblical truth that we're actually quite wretched all on our own. No need for mitigating circumstances to put a pressure upon us. Our aversion to the doctrine of total depravity and our embrace of the people are basically good doctrine is the reason that we extend and receive rationalizations of sin instead of confessions of it. In fact, I had a conversation with one of our kids who got into some trouble on Friday night for the way that she treated her sister. That narrows it down, but don't ask him about it afterward. I don't want to put him on blast here publicly, you know. But it, it, over the course of the conversation, as I'm addressing one's sin against the other, the response was, but dad, she did fill in the blank. You've heard this before, right? The idea being, I'm not a dirty, wicked sinner. The environment that was created by that person, who I'm pretty sure is actually a dirty, wicked sinner, my hands were tied. My hands were tied. Right? I had this option, this option. You were going to get mad about both of them, so I chose what I thought was the better of the two sinful options. But again, the doors were closed. The windows were closed. This that was the only way out. <laughs> See, we don't, want to, we don't want it to be about the wickedness that is in us. We want it to be about something, again, that's outside of us. We want, to be, we want it to be about the difficulty that was pressing in on us from the outside, not something that arose on the inside. But those difficulties that we find ourselves in outside expose who we are before they shape who we are. Both of those things, as we've argued, are going to occur. But all of your situations, circumstances, and difficulties first expose who you are before they are shaping who you are. So what we have commonly regarded as forgiveness isn't forgiveness. It, it simply isn't. It isn't the clearing of a debt by accepting the payment that is due. It's accepting the excuses for why the debt accrued in the first place so that we feel free to continue indebting ourselves to others. Right? Just make debt super normal, and we'll all walk around in debt, as in fact we do in both categories, right? Just normalize it. And we're so invested in the false system of forgiveness that when someone confesses to us properly, we're actually made tremendously uncomfortable by it, and we try to drag them back into the system of rationalization, right? I mean, try this sometime. Actually, just confess your sin flatly with no excuse because you already know it's inexcusable. And watch what the other person does. I mean, just give it to them straight. I'm sorry I did that to you. I'm wicked. That wickedness came out and was perpetrated on you. Please forgive me. I was wrong. Here's what that person's going to do if they have the courage. If they don't do it, trust me, they want to. Here's what they're going to do. They're going to say, but why did you do it? It's a burning question, isn't it? 
Anytime someone sins, even if it wasn't against you, even if it's just a news story, a horrible murder is committed, a robbery is committed, why do we have so many docu-series about horrible crimes? It's because we're absolutely inset, obsessed with why people do what they do, because we're desperate to make sin rational in a way that, in fact, it simply isn't. Right? We have to know, why'd they do it? Why'd they do it? And so you actually give somebody a flat confession of your sin. I'm a bad person, therefore I did this bad thing. Would you please forgive me? They're going to try to pull more out of you than that. No, 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 but seriously, tell me why. What was it? What I mean is, please tell me there's some extenuating circumstance that will help me excuse you from this. I'd really like to excuse you because I don't want to believe that you're as bad as you just said you are because then I might have to consider the fact that I'm as bad as some people probably think I am. And I'd really rather not go there. So they're going to ask you that question. The other reason that we ask that question is because if we're honest, the answer to that question is going to determine whether or not we accept their payment or not. I want to be the judge of the rationale for your sin, and then I'll decide if you're deserving of forgiveness or not. You see, this gives me all the power. This makes this less about God's command for me to forgive and more about me sitting in the seat of judgment over the circumstances that led you to do what you did. I get to be God. That's the idea. So we don't actually want a person's confession and repentance, what we want is their rationalization so that we can sit in judgment over it. And we want it because we want to feel free to engage in that rationalization ourselves. Stop throwing a wrench in our system. But in truth, the answer to the question, why did you do it, is always the same. And in fact, for Bible-believing Christians, it's often just a dumb question to ask. Why did you do that? Have you read your Bible? You know why I did that. I did it because I'm a horrible sinner and sometimes that sneaks out. <laughs> it's that simple. I'm a bad person. I'm in recovery, but sometimes I do bad stuff. Right? Would you please forgive me for that? But we want to be judge of whether or not their sin deserves to be forgiven based on the rationale that they provided. But of course, that misses the point of forgiveness because it's never deserved. It's never deserved, and sin is never appropriately rationalized. Which is why I'm saying the way that we operate is totally in a separate category from biblical forgiveness and biblical confession. So what is forgiveness? It is accepting the payment that is owed for someone's sin against you. That's what forgiveness is. Now, you may be thinking, then why does the Bible talk about forgiveness like it's so difficult? Like, we, we have a tendency to think, well, forgiveness is apparently like this really hard thing, and you struggle with it and all those sorts of things, and, you know, bitterness creeps in, and it's very dangerous and all of that. But the way that you're talking about forgiveness as debt collection doesn't seem like it's that hard for the person who's extending the forgiveness. You may think, I see the difficulty of confession, but forgiveness, you get to be a debt collector. <laughs> what could be so hard about that? 
Well, the reason that even with this accurate definition of forgiveness in place, it is still difficult is because one, as we've already mentioned, we're actually invested in a system of rationalization rather than confession and forgiveness. And two, we like having people in our debt. We like having people in our debt. We like to extend the length of their indebtedness to us because it feels good to be owed. It's sort of a, a power in it. That, and we often think that we are owed more than we actually are. We often think that we're owed more than we actually are. If someone wounds us deeply enough, we don't feel like their confession and repentance is enough. Often we want more than God requires from the other person. So we will not receive what God says they owe because we've added interest in our own heart and mind. So make no mistake, the accurate and biblical understanding of forgiveness is still an exceedingly tall order for sinners like you and me. Now, since we have some understanding of what forgiveness is and maybe are detoxing from that, I know that all sorts of questions will emerge and we can have conversations throughout the week and you know, all of those sorts of things like we generally do. But now that it's been established what forgiveness actually is biblically, how do we know if we've done it? How do you know if you've forgiven someone? And, and don't forget the text that this sermon is on. You need to know the answer to that question because what does Jesus say? He says, you've got to do this. It is a command for you to do this. So how do we know if we have in fact obeyed Jesus' command to forgive? This question seems difficult to us because as has already been said, we define or verify things at a minimum. We verify things on the basis of our emotional state, right? We think that our feelings about a thing express the highest reality of it. And, and so we wonder if we could have possibly done something authentically if we didn't feel it deeply. And so we're, we think, can you forgive someone from the heart if you don't really feel like you did? So how do I know? But in fact, you can. Forgive someone from the heart without feeling it or without feeling like it. In fact, why would you ever feel like it? I mean, we've already established the categories, right? They, they don't deserve your forgiveness. That's why it's forgiveness. And there's no excuse for what they did to you, which is why it's sin. So why would we ever expect to have a good feeling about it? It's a little bit nonsensical. That's exactly when somebody needs forgiveness, though, isn't it? when they don't deserve it, and when what they did can't be excused or overlooked or swept under the rug. When something cannot be rationalized, justified, or excused because it wasn't a mistake, a blunder, or a misstep, that's when we're finally talking about forgiveness because that's when we're talking about sin. See, mistakes and missteps can be excused, but sins have to be forgiven. So again, how do we know if we've done it? Well, forgiveness is an action that is performed in response to someone else's action. When the offender takes the action of confession, we respond with the action of forgiveness. This has both a verbal dimension and a social one. You accept their confession, and you no longer regard them as a debtor who owes you something. That's forgiveness. You don't do this because you feel like it. You do it because you're, you're following orders. 
That's, that's what God told you to do. Forgiveness isn't a matter of feeling, it's a matter of acting. And as we've been discussing, acting rightly, well, there's, there's the lights. <laughs> but as we've been discussing, that's no small thing to act against your feelings. To feel in a way that is disaligned with your actions is actually always what we're supposed to be doing because all of the things that God's calling us to do are generally at the beginning misaligned with our feelings. But in God's kindness, our feelings will begin to follow our actions. So you perform the act of forgiveness rather than trying to conjure up its feelings. But that's what most of us try to do. Rather than actually performing the action of forgiveness, we'll pray a lot and we'll do some fasting and we'll do a Bible study on forgiveness. And what are we actually aiming for in all that? We're trying to conjure up feelings that we associate with forgiveness, all the while never actually engaging in the act of it that would actually begin to bring those feelings along. This is just one of the other ways that a feelings-oriented faith will rob you of all of the gifts of sanctification that the Lord actually wants to give because he calls you to obedient action first and all the warm, fuzzy feelings get to follow. Right? That's the idea. And so forgiveness is a transaction. One person comes to you, they confess their sin, they ask for your forgiveness, and you give it. Yes, I forgive you. Now, that doesn't mean that the relationship is as it once was. That doesn't mean that trust has been reestablished. That doesn't mean that there are no consequences. What it does mean is the debt is paid, and in my mental ledger, you are no longer a debtor. That's what it means. That's what forgiveness is. We try to make it far more complicated a thing than Scripture actually teaches that it is. Now, last question. Do I have to forgive everyone? I didn't say in closing, I just said last question. <laughs> last question. Do I have to forgive everyone? Based on what we've covered thus far, the answer should be obvious. No. No. You are not obligated to forgive everyone. Indeed, you can't forgive everyone because forgiveness is an exchange that requires two parties. The debtor and the person who is owed are both required to participate for forgiveness to even be established. So remember that forgiveness is acceptance of payment to clear a debt, and you cannot accept what isn't offered. So you're not under obligation to forgive those who have not sought your forgiveness. But you are under obligation to forgive those who have sought it, just as God in Christ forgave you when you asked for it. So what do we do when you've been sinned against and the person has not sought your forgiveness? This is the closing question. What do you do when you've been sinned against and the person has not sought your forgiveness? Well, you pray and you prepare for the day that they do. You want to be ready for that day when it comes. You want your heart to be tender and kind and open for the business of forgiveness when the day finally comes that they offer it. Part of the participation, or excuse me, part of the preparation for forgiving others is remembering God's forgiveness of us. The other part is remembering God's provision for us. And one of those things, that being remembering God's forgiveness of us, is pretty straightforward. 
We can go ahead and practice it now. Remember God's forgiveness of you. Go ahead and grab in your mind the worst, most inexcusable thing that you have done. Just go ahead and grab it. And God in Christ says, forgiven, paid for. That debt no longer stands against you. How, how can we withhold what has been given to us? How arrogant. And so what you do, you rehearse that. And you get ready for the day that those who have sinned against you might have their hearts softened enough to come to you. And what they should find when they have softened their heart and are ready to confess is they should find in you a soft heart that is ready to receive the confession. Not a brick wall that withholds the very thing that is the ground of your salvation. I mean, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is going to tell the parable of the wicked servant. You remember this one? The one who received the clearing of an incalculable debt. And then later he finds some, some person who owes him, uh, I mean, a, a decent amount of money. Hasn't thrown in jail. You know how the parable ends. We are not permitted to withhold that which we have received. The second way to prepare outside of rehearsing God's kindness to you, to soften you up, to be able to receive others' confession and extend what you have been given by God is to think about God's provision for you. You see, we like to play comparison games, don't we? We, we like to think about this person's sin in relation to our sin, and there's a category for that when you're talking about meeting out civil or social consequences. I'm not saying that that's an invalid uh, realm of thought. I'm just saying that interpersonal forgiveness is outside of that realm. That's not what we're talking about. And so, think about God's provision for you in the sins that you've committed. And what I mean by that is how has God kept you from bearing the full weight of what your sin should have brought down on your head? That's what I mean. How has God restrained you? How has God mitigated the consequences for the sins that you have committed? Because it's, it's very easy for us to look at people whose lives are in shambles and who have then betrayed us or treated us in whatever kind of a way, and we really do honestly look down at them. We really do forget everything in the prologue about how, uh, yeah, the difference between non-Christians and Christians is not that we're better than them, but then you let somebody wrong you deeply enough, and this thing starts to well up in you that's like, no, I am, though. No, I am. I actually am better than them. I have better judgment and I didn't make all of the mistakes that they made. And so I just, want you to, I just want you to consider, is it actually true that the reason that your life is not in shambles is not because you didn't try to tear it down? Or is it because God in his kindness hasn't let you for some reason? Arrogance and pride must die or we will never follow Jesus as he's commanded us to do. Let's pray.